This episode of Consumer VC is brought to you by Ferret. Okay, so let's say you're going to invest in a business or you're considering investment from someone else. How do you actually know if they're legit? Sometimes deals move so fast that it's tough to get that confidence fast. Luckily, there's Ferret, the first relationship intelligence tool for savvy investors and CEOs who need to know who they can trust. Running a quick search on Ferret can give you information like past lawsuits, bankruptcy, fraud allegations, new coverage, and also can be used to verify past successes that they claim. A new relationship is always exciting, but that also means trust is important from the start. To get in front of the line and join Ferret's exclusive early beta where you can be part of the first thousand that have an early look and help influence the product, head over to ferret.ai and use the promo code CONSUMERVC. This episode is also presented by Gorgeous, the number one help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce stores, and can turn your customer support into a private center. We're going to hear from Alex from Princess Polly to learn more. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. Our demographic is Gen Z, and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are, and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Stay tuned after the episode where I chat with Rowan from the Gorgeous team, where he shares three tips to help manage your customer support center during the holidays. Link in show notes to sign up for Gorgeous and to get two months free. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Carter Ream, co-founder of M13. M13 is one of the largest LA-started venture capital funds. Some of their investments include Lyft, Tonal, ClassPass, and Daily Harvest. Previously, Carter founded Vive, the alcohol grain spirit brand. This was such a fun conversation. We discussed how to build a modern venture capital consumer-focused fund, Carter's technology thesis, especially as it comes to e-commerce, and the evolution from fund one to fund three. Without further ado, here's Carter. Carter, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's tough to have a bad day when you're sitting in LA, so I can't complain. I totally agree. Totally agree with you there. Why don't I start from the very kind of beginning? What was your attraction to startups and venture capital? I think it started from our brother and I. Uh, we started as investment bankers at Goldman because we kind of didn't know what we wanted to do out of college and ended up at Goldman. Um, we decided to leave Goldman 15 years ago. It's funny, you know, now if one of us or someone listening to this podcast left a place like Goldman, they, they would say, yeah, of course you're going to start a company. But people forget 15 years ago, you know, people either thought we were crazy or they just felt really badly for us. Like, man, these guys had everything going for themselves. And they left Goldman to go start a company, you know. Um, but we started a company that we built up and successfully sold in the consumer space five years ago. And along the way, we happened to, you know, angel invest in seed companies like Ring and Bonobos and uh, all these great companies, Daily Harvest and Rothy's. And, you know, really just what we find that we love is we love the intersection of being both investors and operators. And that's why, as we talk about M13, we're going to talk about our model of kind of how we do both. But we think we're better operators because we're investors and we think we're better investors because we're operators. And so uh, I just think it's such an amazing time right now. You have so many incredibly talented people thinking about a world that a lot of us haven't even thought about disrupting industries um, in ways we never imagined. And so it's really such an exciting space and kind of uh, always fun. Yeah, totally. So I guess starting after you left Goldman, I mean, what was the insight that led you to find Vive and why did you kind of take this 
risk, so to speak, that everyone was probably uh, very worried or what have you. Why did you decide to kind of jump and, and start Vive? And after that experience, why did you then decide that you wanted to go on the investing side as and become an investor, launch your own fund, as opposed to starting another company? Yeah, for sure. When I was at Goldman, I spent most of my two years working on the deal team that took KKR public. So kind of precedent setting deal at the time. Conversely, my brother worked on the largest alcohol merger of all time, the Procter and Gamble Gillette merger, and then really got inspired by a guy named Kevin Plank. And Kevin Plank was a 32-year-old about to IPO a billion-dollar company. Although today it seems like every 32-year-old is about to IPO a billion-dollar company. That there were not many Kevin Planks, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, Kevin Plank's obviously the founder of Under Armour. And so my brother really just got inspired by Kevin. Um, I had taken a job at Oak Tree Capital in their private equity group, you know, a year before I was going to roll off Goldman. And my brother just got inspired by him and said, look, I don't know if I can, but I want to go try and be an entrepreneur. And so we left. I ended up not showing up at Oak Tree, even though I had accepted the job, you know, 362 days before and decided to start a spirits kind of uh, platform called Vive, as, as you mentioned. Um, and really, it was just from him working on the transaction, saw white space, saw how the big guys weren't innovating and felt like we could build something very innovative. So we built this platform around a better way to drink. And then fast forward, you know, we sold uh, Vive in 2016. Obviously, along the way, we were, as I mentioned, angel investing and happy to invest in so many great companies. And we basically looked around and said, we want to build a platform where we can both invest behind and launch, you know, the next generation of great consumer tech companies. And we said, look, the whole world's being disrupted and evolved. Um, how do we think venture needs to evolve or to be disrupted to create kind of one of the great next, you know, venture platforms over the next decades to come? And uh, as a firm, we invested in what we call kind of the horizontal layer of consumer technology. And so similar to technology, which used to be a vertical, now technology sits horizontally across every industry. We think the same could be said for consumer technologies, right? And so more and more companies can kind of disintermediate traditional distribution models and have a direct relationship with the consumer. So that could be a B2B2C company like Slack. That could be a food marketplace. That could be something like Lyft that we've invested behind. And um, we basically kind of saw two trends to kind of bring the circle full here that led us to believe a new model was needed investing kind of where we invest, which is kind of series A, series B, and, and some seed, and specifically in consumer tech. But the first trend was the complete democratization of the ability to launch new companies. So people forget when we seeded ring doorbells because Jamie Siminoff was the only one that had come up with the idea for a wireless doorbell. Now there's hundreds of competitors. I mean, shoot, take Bonobos. They were the only one selling pants online. They're, that was their point of differentiation. And now imagine how silly that sounds since the whole world sells pants online, right? And so in every category we look at, whether it's healthcare, fintech, real estate, food, there's 10 or 15 companies, all well-pedigreed, all well-funded going after the same thing. And then if you couple that with the idea that all the companies we invested can have this direct relationship with the consumer, and then you couple that with the advent of you know, advertising technologies, obviously the most famous being Facebook targeting. In our book, Shortcut Your Startup, that we wrote a few years ago that hit the bestseller list, we say a 1% difference is now a 1,000 times better. And I'll use a D to C stat just because it's the easiest to quantify. But the famous stat is a 1% difference in four e-commerce statistics is a 400% increase in sales, compound that over 36 months. And you're talking about a 5x difference in revenue between a top quartile company and second quartile company. So take someone like Daily Harvest, which we seed invested in, and I've been on the board since day one, and we have many millions into the company now, right? In year three, it was on its way to doing a, being a unicorn. Their closest competitor did the revenue exactly on the second quartile line, which was 12 million in revenue, and is out of business after three years. And I picture them sitting in Brooklyn, probably smoking, you know, drinking some hipster beer going like, I don't get it. We sold frozen food online. They sell frozen food online. One company's on its way to being a unicorn and we're out of business. But this idea that the difference between winning and losing has never been smaller and the winners take the big markets and the losers are really not even losers, second place finishers basically uh, fail to exist. And so the last thing that I'll say and then I'll pause is, Effectively, we said, look, we want to create a next kind of generation 
venture platform. We want to be able to invest behind the best ideas. And when we can't find an investable idea, launch our own companies. But we believe we need to build a firm that's not just around picking the winners, but it's to become table stakes. You have to invest behind great entrepreneurs and great entrepreneurs, but that's becoming table stakes. How do you build a firm all around operational expertise so that we can help entrepreneurs execute better by bringing this big operating team to the table? And so, um, because we think there is just so much competition, the ability to operate and execute better is the key differentiator to give the companies you invest behind the kind of the greatest likelihood of success. How do you think about distribution now? Because like now it's it's a lot easier than it was uh, 10, 15 years ago to have that kind of access point of distribution. And now there's, of course, models and different growth hacks that you can do for distribution versus thinking about analyzing and saying, okay, is this product truly innovative? And could this, do you have to have a truly innovative product now in order to be the next unicorn? There was a time specifically direct to consumer where you could kind of growth hack your way to success. But like any opportunity, that opportunity became saturated very quickly. And so I think you still have to have tremendous founders with tremendous ideas. But the idea, whether it's in healthcare companies like Capsule or companies like Form Health, which is a telemedicine uh, app around obesity we recently invested in, or you know, you look at FinTech, something like um, a rewards platform like Fold that's around kind of getting rewards around Bitcoin, or I could go category by category. I think the great part of it is you could have this direct relationship with a consumer. And so when you start to see success, companies can scale faster and more efficiently than ever. So, you know, Kevin Plank and Under Armour, they're famous in the consumer space. Again, we invest behind the technologies that power consumer change. So we don't invest in products. We actually don't really do much D2C anymore because it's harder and harder to create venture scale returns. So we tend to invest in marketplaces, software, SaaS models. But you know, Kevin Plank is famous and Under Armour, they were the fastest consumer company to ever get to 100 million in sales. And it only took them 10 years. Now imagine a company, right? When we think, when we look at companies now, they're growing faster and faster. So. You still have to have a world-class idea, um, but once you show signs of success, right, we're seeing bigger outcomes than ever before when you look at all these IPOs. And we're operating under a thesis that the winners for this in the next 10 years will actually be bigger and get there faster than ever before because there's VCs who know the roadmap in terms of how to scale businesses. There's a lot of talent in the marketplace that have helped build you know, these great brands like Lyft and like Postmates and all these. And there's a very repeatable playbook, right? If you have an idea that's working now, there are people in the ecosystem that could give you the playbook to allow you to scale faster than ever. That's really helpful. Within consumer technology, are you pretty thematic driven in that you have um, your own thoughts around what could happen in the future, what you'd like to happen in the future, or do you consider yourself more of like an opportunistic investor where you really want the the entrepreneur to maybe uh, shed like the insight towards you, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think our journey has been kind of an evolution. So we're just finalizing raising a you know, new $350 million fund to invest in kind of core series A, series B. Um, and this will be our third fund. So I think about our evolution. Fund one uh, was all pretty much access driven and with using incredible pattern recognition. So we were using our network to see a lot of great deals and we were using pattern recognition. On fund one, we seeded seven unicorns. And so we're very successful on that. On fund two, as we expanded our team and brought in a, you know, a larger investor base, it was a you know, just shy of $200 million fund. We combine that access-driven approach with a thematic-driven approach. And so we basically ask ourselves in all the buckets that we play, which is the big buckets of the $14.7 trillion in consumer spending. So that's fintech, healthcare, food, transportation, et cetera, real estate. We basically say, look, what are consumers going to be doing 10 years into the future? And then we say, what are the technologies that are going to power that change? And so take something, I'll give you an example of that evolution. Uh, e-com. Clearly, e-com is going to continue to rise. It's still only, you know, about 20% of, of total of all of commerce. In fund one, we felt like we made a living investing in some of the best D2C companies, right? We seeded Daily Harvest, we seeded Rothy's, we seeded Ring, 
FabFitFun, all these great companies. And we're very early in things like Thrive Market and others. But in Fund 2, we said, look, we still believe in the thesis of the rising tide of e-com, but we think it's harder to create venture scale returns on D2C companies. And so we thought we did some work and we said the value layer is, is shifting in how you take advantage of that trend. And so, for example, we invested in a great business called Passport, which is basically a SaaS platform around international shipping to make all these D2C companies be able to ship uh, internationally much easier because there's a reason why Shopify is worth over $150 billion and no e-commerce D2C company is worth more than probably a few billion dollars today. So behind that tread, we decided to take more of a picks and shovels approach in terms of where the value layer was. So we look in all our big verticals. You know, in healthcare, we think a lot around kind of uh, telemedicine, but kind of what's the evolution of that? We seeded heal, and so we've been tracking this space for a while, but now we think it's around the verticalization of specialization of telemedicine platforms, and we kind of could go through all the buckets. But in each of our large verticals, we're constantly doing thematic work. And one of the reasons we do that is that the market moves so quickly. The best deals are getting done so quickly. And so it's hard to get up to speed on a sector you're not up to speed on. So we have to have a thesis. And so when we see a deal, we can react very quickly and kind of do our work more quickly. Yeah, I mean, those are all really interesting points. I mean, it's funny because I had on one of the first episodes of this podcast was with Paul Martino at Bullpen. And he was saying, I even asked him like point blank, like what are some trends that you're interested in or focus on? He's like, oh, I don't think about it that way. We don't, we don't even think about trends because we're so opportunistic and the founder is what brings us the insight. And it seems like you are an M13. It's a bit of like a hybrid model where like you're thinking about different themes, um, want to stay on top of, of current trends, but also of course, want to see that insight from the founder, and of course, I'd imagine want to be surprised as well, right? I think that's exactly right. I always think as an investor, you want a brain that acts like the Facebook algorithm, right? So I try to take in as many data points as humanly possible, and I'm constantly running pattern recognition on it to see what I think the trends are that are emerging. And so obviously, you know, our thematic approach is always evolving, right? Literally by the day, by the week, by the month. And we learn a ton from entrepreneurs, but I think we just want enough base foundational thematic work. So when that opportunity comes, we're smart on this space. Because one of the things as a VC is we probably think more than a lot of our peers about risk. We don't, we don't think that uh, venture needs to be an inherently risky asset class. We just think people don't think about risk as much. Yes, the way we all win is we create outliers, right? We back incredible and big companies, but you can still do it in a risk-adjusted way. And one of the things I always often talk about is the perception of risk is often confused with the lack of knowledge, right? So if I'm new to a space and I've never done any work in that space, it's going to probably be hard for me to get comfortable on a new company in a very short period of time because of that perception of risk. Or the thing that I think is very different now than when we started investing six, seven years ago is context, right? So a lot of times a very smart individual whose day job is not in tech will bring me a deal and they go, oh my gosh, this is the best idea, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you're totally right. But what you're lacking, because you're not day-to-day in tech, but you're a real estate investor by trade, is context. What you don't know is there's five or four or five other companies that are well-funded, are light years ahead. So it's not just about, is it a good idea? And is it a good entrepreneur? It's understanding the context of who else is playing that space because of this democratization and so much competition in every single space. I also am just quite interested too. Like I remember you said that on the e-commerce side, you're looking at the picks and shovels, you know, the Shopify for X, so to speak, whether it's 3PL or or what have you. How do you think about like, like the customer profile for when you're investing in some of these like e-commerce picks and shovels uh, businesses? Yeah, like to me, I would describe Shopify um, as kind of B to B to C, right? So it's kind of B to B, but there's obviously a C element, and that's the big shift, right? Uh, Shopify five or seven years ago would have been a B2B business, but now it's B2B to C. And so take a business like um, Northstar. It's a SaaS platform that is sold into the enterprise. So sold into talent leaders in the HR department, but it's around kind of financial acumen um, for the end consumer being the employee. So it's serving consumers. It just happens to be selling in through the enterprise. 
But at the end of the day, the customer is a consumer is trying to figure out how to uh, amplify their benefits or they're effectively bringing kind of private wealth services to the everyday person in the workplace. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we're so bullish on L.A., um, obviously, as a firm now, we have you know 30 people, offices in New York and LA, 10 partners, and a presence in San Francisco. But you know, if you believe in our thesis, more and more companies are becoming consumer tech companies by the day because their end user is a C, right? And and so when I think about LA, you know, I think people uh, underestimate how many great companies are in LA. You know, um, take something like LA. I think over $300 billion of enterprise value has been created in LA um, over the last five years. And when you look at category leaders, you know, Riot Games and Gaming, Snap and Social, GoodRx and, you know, Healthcare, Thrive Market, Dollar Shave Club, you go through the list. You know, for consumer tech companies, they have to understand brand, they have to understand storytelling, they have to understand content, media, celebrity, influence. And those things grow like palm trees in LA. Those are indigenous to our landscape. And yes, could someone in New York or San Francisco or Austin and Miami understand those things? Yes, but not like LA because this is the storytelling, content, media, influence, capital of the world. And so part of why we headquartered the firm in LA, even though we have an office in New York, is that we just think that that's part of what you need to understand to be one of the best investors in consumer tech um, in this horizontal layer as we move forward. How do you think about the LA ecosystem currently? Yeah, um, I saw a stat in uh, .LA that funding year over year in LA is up uh, over 370%. And uh, it was kind of number two uh, to dollars funded behind San Francisco. So I think, you know, LA was already, people were kind of ready to take it seriously. I saw more and more Silicon Valley VCs coming down here pre-COVID. Um, obviously, as a result of COVID, more people have headed up, you know, headed to Miami, like Keith Rebois. Um, more people have headed to Austin, like Joe Lonsdale and, and kind of that group. And then obviously, a lot more people have spent time um, in LA and things like that. And so um, I think LA is poised to continue the extent that it's on. Um, obviously, San Francisco has an incredible amount of great tech companies, an incredible amount of talent. But when you look at the ecosystem and, you know, obviously raising a 350 or, or maybe larger fund as we close this uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I think the one thing that was missing from the LA ecosystem was more Series A, Series B investors that were kind of top tier in LA. Obviously, you have some tremendous firms like Fifth Wall and Upfront, um, but obviously, traditionally, LA had more great seed investors, people like Brian Lee or Mucker Labs and others. But now, obviously, there's a handful of us that have very large funds around Series A and Series B. And so my hope is that the companies that are being built in L.A. won't have the need to go to San Francisco because there's the talent, there's the advisors, there's the capital, and there's everything they need kind of homegrown here in L.A. How do you think about the current landscape for the Series A and Series B market? And I've talked to funds in, in certainly in San Francisco that come down a lot more now to Los Angeles and investing in companies in Los Angeles at the Series A, Series B. And I'm just wondering, like, does there need to be more local capital in Los Angeles? And two, just overall, just how do you think about like the landscape of Series A? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's clear that more and more Silicon Valley VCs are spending time in LA. So I think it's safe to say uh, if you're building an incredible company in LA right now, you probably don't need to leave LA to raise capital between you know, M13 and others, as well as all the Silicon Valleys. I think you know we have a large thesis around the creator economy, as do many others that are invested behind that economy. So I think a lot of those companies will be born and are born. When you look at Genies in LA, when you look at others, um, there's there's a lot of great kind of creator economy type companies that are being um, built uh, in LA like Pop. You're going to continue to see that. I think you'll continue to see other firms, whether they're homegrown um, or whether it's kind of Silicon Valley firms that instead of just coming to visit, will actually set up shop here. And then as I think about kind of Series A in general, um, obviously, you know, we're in a very kind of white hot market. It's very competitive, fast moving. And I think, you know, we're we're trying to balance and we struggle on a weekly basis. How do we maintain our discipline? Because uh, we've all, all of us who've been investing behind the last eight or 10 years, 
have lived in a world where valuations have only gone up and to the right, right? But history would suggest that at some point we will have a recessionary environment and if valuations come off 20 or 30%, you need to make sure you are disciplined on your entry point, right? I, I love the Warren, famous Warren Buffett quote, you make your money when you buy, not when you sell. And so, and I think, you know, for every good outcome of for momentum-based investors, there's others investors that have been well-documented that paid very high prices for what were good companies, but they paid very high prices. And when those companies faltered a little bit, all of a sudden the math of their returns didn't make sense, right? Very well-documented cases like WeWork and others. They're still great companies, right? It's still an $8 billion company, but if you got in on that two years ago at $20 billion, you're not very happy right now, right? And so it's always about the valuation you're paying and things like that. And so I think, you know, we we're super excited about all the, the movement in the market right now. It's super competitive. You, you have to kind of have discipline on valuation. But having said that, I think you're seeing a lot of companies that have a real shot to create real outlier type of businesses. And so, you know, you don't want to be foolish over, you know, the valuation if you think this is a company that could have a shot to be a real outlier, a five or $10 billion company or more. How do you think about price discipline relating to M13 and as well as, you know, speed and doing diligence in today's market? Because it seems like founders are just raising at such a clip. And I've had some investors on the show that say, yeah, you know what, like this valuation, we we stand by that it's too high and we're out. I'm just kind of curious on the day-to-day side of what you do. How do you kind of manage those three things? You know, we remind ourselves that in every fund that we have, we only have 20 core positions. So every 18 months, we need to make 20 bets. And so, you know, we invest behind less than 1% of the deals that we um, see. And so, right, we're trying to find needles in a haystack. And so, you know, we want founders to respect us because, you know, we do diligence. And sometimes, you know, we're going to miss deals because we're not willing to just kind of make that leap of faith, but we actually have to kind of do through the, do the work. But I think for the most part, we figured out how to compress our diligence cycle in a very short period of time. So we can diligence a company in, you know, less than a week, but that's because we do the thematic work and that's because we tend to stay in places that we know. And, you know, we remind ourselves because we're disciplined on price, because we're disciplined on the amount of diligence we want to do, we are going to maybe miss some stuff, right? But again, we only have to place 20 great bets every 18 months. And so for us, the bar is, if I can only do one deal this year, is this the deal that I would do? Again, we, we think that is a good approach. Right now, every investor has been surprised on the upside because of how white hot the market is. But I believe some of those investors that that probably have less discipline now than they normally would when the world comes off and enters a recessionary environment, whenever that is in the future, it could be one year, two years, it could be three or four or five. I believe they're going to regret not being as disciplined as they were today. So um, we tend to stand our ground and say, look, You know, part of the reason why we built this very differentiated approach, right? We have one and a half people for our operating team, for our investing team. We have 10 partners at the firm. Five of those are full-time investing partners, but five of those are what we call our propulsion partners, that their job is not to come join the firm and start investing. Their job is to come join the firm and continue to operate. But basically, they wake up every single day and say, how can I help our portfolio companies execute better? And we have world-class people like Christine Choi, who was running brand and comms globally for Richard Branson, or Lizzie Francis, who is the ex-CMO of Guild Group and then the COO of GOAT. And so, right, we part of our differentiation is we don't want to have to compete on price. We want to be competitive on price, but we want to win deals because people say, wow, your money is as green as everyone else's, but you also have this world-class operating team. Uh, one thing that's kind of fun is we do an MPS score every quarter with our founders. And if you know how NPS scores work, anything over 70 is considered world-class. You know, a brand like Costco is 74, a brand like Apple 67. Our NPS score with our founders is 82. And that gets us really excited because it means we're, you know, doing what we said we were going to do when we invested in those companies. And we hope that those founders will continue to tell other VCs and tell other founders how helpful our propulsion team is. And we hope we win deals because people not only want our capital, but they want our expertise because we're still backing the best of the best founders. 
but we recognize that a Series A and Series B, they don't have the teams built out that they're eventually going to have. And so, you know, this idea that Christine Choi can help you launch your, you know, while you're launching and can work with you for three weeks to kind of make sure you have a successful launch. Or when you're having a data problem that Rob who's our partner of data and our director of growth can help you navigate that problem, effectively filling in those gaps to give companies the jet fuel to kind of get up the J curve. And so um, I believe if you don't have a point of differentiation in venture and you're only trying to win on price, meaning you're overpaying, I believe it's a race to the bottom on your returns. And that's a game that we want to stay out of. Got it. I also wanted to understand too, I think we, we talked a little bit about this, but we'll have to dive in more about the studio side to towards M13. I know Anna Barber, I think, heads that up, which um, I know her well. She came on the show when she was at uh, uh, Techstars. But how does that work? Um, like, how do you think about, okay, if you're not seeing something in the market, for example, and you building it internally yourself, what is that process like of building that, building out that particular uh, piece of a uh, technology? Yeah. First and foremost, I will say we uh, we love having Anna on board. Obviously, she joined about six months ago and, and kind of runs the studio side. I think in general, the way we think about it is we want to invest behind great businesses, right? And so um, we first and foremost like to find investable businesses, but sometimes there's white spaces where there's not an investable opportunity. And in those cases, we'll basically launch something ourselves on our launch pad. Sometimes there's a white space or an investor that lacks an investable opportunity because no one's doing the idea we've thought of. That's increasingly rare given how many companies are launching every year. Sometimes it's because of valuation discipline, right? It's because all the assets that are investable, we just think are too expensive. Sometimes it's because of lack of a strong founding team. And sometimes it's just because all of the investable opportunities have kind of passed us by. And so we think about, you know, effectively, right, the fund invests in seed, series A and series B, and the launch pad is basically pre-seed, right? So we can incubate our own businesses that are kind of pre-seed where we can take, you know, we get to handpick the team, we get to handpick, you know, the sector, and we get to build the base, the business with a strong foundational support because we've kind of operationalized that on launch pad. And then we give our fund the opportunity to invest. And so it's just another, the way we think about studio model is it's another stream of investable opportunities for our fund, just like YC is, just like Techstars is, but we get to kind of do it internally. And so we're really excited. We've now launched, I think, uh, 10 businesses out of, out of our launch pad. The first one was a direct-to-consumer beauty from within business called Ray. Um, then we launched some consumer tech platforms. Then we um, launched recently a bunch around kind of connected health and wellness. And our latest business we're not talking about, but is with one of our very well-known kind of celebrity investors uh, that is a telemedicine biotech platform. And so uh, we're really excited to continue to evolve, you know, Launchpad. And Anna has been fantastic. Uh, our director of Launchpad, Andrew, as well. Um, and we're going to continue to build out that model where we want the best entrepreneurs to want to build within our ecosystem because they're going to get uh, access to our propulsion team. They're going to get act to be able to launch companies faster and get them to scale faster. And they know if they launch those businesses successfully, they have a captive funding source um, in our fund, which will then write checks into those businesses. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? You know, I think it's investing with empathy. So we we talk about as a firm, we want to be empathetic, right? Everyone on at the firm has been an operator or a founder. And, you know, I just think like as an investor, more and more investors need to understand what it's like to be in those entrepreneurs' shoes, right? It's lonely. It's hard. It can be depressing. There can be ups and there can be downs. And really, Christine Choi, who's our partner, Brandon Combs, who came from Virgin, she really kind of spearheaded as we were doing a lot of exercises in the in the firm's early days, but how we needed to make sure that we always approached founders with empathy. And I think that's really important. Um, the second thing that I think is really important where we've tried to take a leadership position is just, um, you know, being kind of diversity, DE&I, ESG, and things like that. And I think more and more firms have to think about how within their own firms, they can give people that might not have an opportunity, opportunities, how they can give the capital to those. Um, you know, we're super proud. We put out blog posts about 
both the diversity within our own firm, that's gender diversity, that's ethnicity diversity, but also the companies we're investing behind and that. And I think, look, we're not going to solve it overnight, but we all need to take a leadership position in that and do our part. And if we do, we're going to leave venture capital and the companies that are created because of venture capital, we're going to create the world a better place. What was your biggest learning during COVID? I think the the biggest learning, one is, I guess two things. One is we focused on mental health a lot, both from an investing point of view. Uh, We have a company called Cove that's a wearable device. You wear it for 20 minutes a day and uh, kind of scientifically proven. It uses neurostim technology to mimic human touch and therefore your body releases more oxytocin. And so we believe the pandemic no one's talking about is mental well-being. Obviously, we've seen that with Olympic athletes like Simon Biles, but we've seen it with our team and our founders. And so we continue to think we want to be part of that change and invest behind that change. And so we've continued just to think about it as how do we take care of our team, again, which is our founders and our internal team and how to kind of invest behind it. And so I think a focus on mental well-being is one. The second one I would probably say um, is culture is a depreciating asset. Right. And we have an incredible culture at M13. But the longer it's gone on without us being around, being able to be in person is the harder it's been to maintain that culture. And so, you know, you can amortize it over a period of time if you have a good culture, but it just gets harder and harder. And so we were fortunate enough a few weeks ago, we were able to get everyone from L.A. and New York and San Francisco together. And we did a four day offsite in L.A. And I mean, I, I think I did cry, if I'm being honest watching people come to the office, give each other hugs. It was like seeing your long lost college friends or that summer camp you went to. And you're like, oh my God, so good to see you, Mike. How was the year? What have you been up to? And to be able to just have dinners with people and do ropes courses and escape rooms and just spend time together. And we literally didn't do, you know, very little strap planning or things like that. We said, let's just spend time together because at the end of the day, culture is about trust and about getting to know people and and waking up every single day and loving what you're doing because as i say culture is is doing uh is doing when nobody's looking basically right and so for us we just really focus on that i think that's the one thing all of, every great business has suffered on through covid is that you know we can't have the same cultures in a virtual world and we've done virtual wine tastings and virtual movie nights you name it we've done it virtually it's just not the same as me being able to, you know, come to your house, Mike, and give you a big hug and say what's going on. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting that when I've talked to venture capital funds, a lot of them say, I don't mind doing deals over Zoom. I don't mind chatting over Zoom. Would I love to be in person? Absolutely. But I kind of become um, acquainted or, you know, um, understand how to actually read or, or maybe evaluate companies and founders while they're uh, over Zoom. But not actually going into an office and, and actually being with your peers, like that's way worse. And that's what they really, really miss. And so I thought that was a quite an interesting uh, statement. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, right, like we've never been more efficient as a firm because we were set up to have two offices. We're very process driven. We use Slack. We use video communication. We were doing that from inception because of two offices. But you can do a deal or I can fundraise over Slack. But again, there's nothing, you just can't build the same culture and human relationship. It's just not the same. Um, so I think you're, you're spot on. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Uh, I would probably say, look, I think uh, two things. Every good founder in this climate has to do two things well. One is they have to be a good chess player, right? So I go through the life with what I call strongly held beliefs loosely. Right. I always have a belief and it's strong, but I'm constantly receptive to new inputs. Right. To go back to that Facebook algorithm, the algorithm in my head is always evolving. And there is so much competition and the world is moving so quickly. And healthcare businesses are being disrupted because of food businesses or this things. Right. Just like the changes in consumer behavior happening across kind of sectors, if that makes sense. And so for me, one thing I look for an entrepreneur is. Who's the entrepreneur? It used to be 10 years ago, this entrepreneur will run through walls. I don't necessarily think that's as good anymore. I want an entrepreneur who's going to constantly be assessing and evolving and looking at data points and kind of continue to tinker because I think that's the skill set that's 
that's needed today. So one is, I think, this ability to constantly evolve. And, you know, we talk about in our book, you know, you need to have a telescope in one eye. You need to be focused on the day-to-day, or sorry, a microscope in one eye, focus on the day-to-day, and a telescope in the other eye looking for the future. And I think that's a very particular skill set that all the best entrepreneurs kind of have. When I think about someone like Rachel Drory from Daily Harvest, she is so focused on the business on a day-to-day basis, but she somehow finds the room and the time to always be looking about future growth opportunities. And that's why she's built such a great business at Daily Harvest. And I think the second thing is every great entrepreneur needs to be a storyteller, right? And they have to be a storyteller and they need to be able to inspire because you have to be able to inspire people to leave their jobs and take a risk to come join your crazy vision. You need to be a storyteller to get venture capitalists to give you money as you're growing. And if you can get really talented people and capital in the door, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can build. And so I think obviously uh, you don't want to be on the bad side of storytelling, which is, you know, I guess full of shit. But as long as you're not that, you do need to have this idea that you need to bring others along for your vision and you have to be the heartbeat. And if you can, if you can be that, you have as good a shot as anyone to be successful. My final question to you is, is it tough working with your brother, Courtney? What's the dynamic like um, since you've now worked on him and, you know, a couple of businesses? What's that dynamic like? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky to be a business partner uh, for a long time now with my brother. Um, I always tell people the ultimate luxury in life when you've achieved some level of success is getting to do what you want with who you want. And, uh, and, and we're really fortunate we've been able to do that since inception with M13 and with all the founders that we back and choose to, you know, go on a very long mission for, right? When you give someone a check, it's not the money, it's the commitment of time over a five to 10 year period of time. Um, in, in the case of my brother and I, I think we're really lucky that we grew up playing competitive sports and he was always the best player on the team. And I was typically the second best player on the team and he would pass to me and I would try to score or I would pass to him and he would try to score, right? It was either one of us passing to the other. And because of that, we um, grew up kind of always looking out for each other versus the typical older brother, younger brother, you know, stuff me in a locker or do things like that. You know, my brother was taking me to high school parties when I was in eighth grade, which I would say is pretty atypical because he's like, hey, this high school party sure beats the eighth grade party. You want to come, you know, or I ended up working at Goldman as a summer first. I was like, hey, dude, this Goldman Sachs place is pretty awesome. You should definitely think about going to work there. And then he worked there. And then I came back full time after he had started. And I think to my point earlier, you know, at the end of the day, partnership is about three things. One, it's about trust and communication. Inherently, we trust and communicate so well, right? If if I if he were to come on the show next week, he would probably be able to tell you the jokes that I made on this show or what I said or how I talked about stuff because we have such inherent ability to know how each other communicate and we clearly have inherent trust. We never doubt our motives. And that is the bedrock of any strong partnership. And the third thing that we talked about earlier is just complementary skill sets, right? He's world-class at things that I'm not world-class at. And I think I'm world-class at things where he maybe doesn't enjoy spending as much time. And so together we're, we're incredibly powerful because um, we kind of complement each other. And because we've done it over a long period of time, it's allowed us to focus on our strengths. So he's gotten even better at those things while I've gotten even better at those things. And we've learned to fill in each other's gaps over time uh, as we've developed as leaders and human beings. That's awesome. That's awesome. I just think that it's just amazing to be able to work with your brother um, um, in, in so many different capacities uh, throughout your career. That's, that's just incredible. Well, Carter, this has been so much fun. Thank you again for your time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm such a huge fan of the podcast. So uh, I'm just flattered and humbled that you had me on and uh, look forward to listening to many more and more episodes of yours. So thanks again. Well, that's super kind of you to say. Super kind of you to say. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Carter on the show. I hope you all enjoyed listening as much as I did talking to Carter. Now let's hear from Rohan from Gorgeous. Rohan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I would love to learn a bit more about your company, Gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Gorgeous is an e-commerce focused help desk. We are an omni-channel solution. We aggregate a bunch of different channels that brands utilize to communicate with their customers. Uh, Things like email, chat, phone, SMS, social media, um, any way really to get in touch with potential customers or customers that are looking to buy from your brand. What we do at Gorgeous is we build in a lot of automation and machine learning into the back end of the product. A lot of times what 
customers are asking to brands is, where's my order? What's my shipping status? Things that are very common and very repetitive. Uh, and what we do at Gorgeous is we help brands automate certain things so that they don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on those common and repetitive requests, but that they can actually spend a lot of time focusing on things that are much more complex in order to drive revenue uh, out of the CX function. So what we do is we actually integrate with uh, three platforms, Shopify, Magento2, and Big Commerce. And what we can do with those platforms is we can actually bring in variables um, from each of the three, things like order number, name, shipping information, tracking information, things that are easily accessible without ever having to leave the Gorgeous platform. And that makes things so much easier for the agents on the brand side of things to get back in touch with customers and make sure that they're helping them in the most efficient way possible. And I always like to talk about uh, social media as well. We have ad comments from Facebook and Instagram. We have Messenger. And we also have Instagram DMs, which is one of our most widely requested features uh, all across our customer base that we can actually bring into the gorgeous platform and help brands communicate with customers and prospective customers, uh, you know, perhaps before they ever hit their website. And so we're very e-commerce focused. We have about 7,000 brands all across the spectrum from early stage east, uh, from early stage e-commerce to much later stage mature companies as well. And we're also very international. That's awesome. So you're able to, with Gorgeous, to uh, brands can consolidate all requests that they get from customers, all the customers' tickets, asking where their orders are in one location. Sounds like it's going to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like gone are the days where brands are just using email to communicate with with their customers, right? They're using email, they're using social media, SMS is something that brands are really utilizing, especially over the last year or so. There's so many different ways to get in front of customers. CX is much more of a proactive activity now than it ever has been, as opposed to just purely reactive. And at Gorgeous, we help brands make things more efficient from from an aggregation and automation perspective. So you have over 7,000 customers, which is amazing, 7,000 brands. From your perspective, when does it make sense for a brand to be thinking about partnering with Gorgeous or be using Gorgeous? It's a good question. Really, our baseline set of requirements is that, you know, they sit on Shopify or, or Big Commerce or Magento too. And that with the integrations that we have with those three platforms, that immediately makes any brand that's uh, looking to consolidate tickets uh, qualified customer for us, right? And so we have customers that are doing, you know, say 300 to 350 tickets a month, and maybe they're just using a couple different channels like just email and, and phone, for example. And then we have much more mature brands on the enterprise level that are accepting tens of thousands of tickets uh, and have multiple, multiple agents on the brand side working to get back to customers. And one of the things that we do differently at Gorgeous is we actually don't price based on the number of heads that you have using Gorgeous on the brand side. So we're not going to charge you for each additional user that you have on the platform. We're actually just going to charge based on ticket volume. And, and that's how we determine where on the spectrum you are. And for that reason, it generally, in combination with all the automation we build in, it tends to be very cost effective for brands. And not only are they saving potentially on that side of things, but they're also able to generate sales through the automation and machine learning that we have built in. And it gives a bunch of people access to the platform. So if someone on the engineering team wants to hop in or the CEO wants to hop in, they can do so. And it's not going to cost the brand anymore. That's awesome. That's awesome. As we're approaching the holidays here, what are three tips for managing the customer experience that you have for the brand? Since obviously in retail, the holiday period is the busiest time. Number one um, is personalize all your interactions with customers. The worst thing that you can do as a brand is make your customers feel like they're just a number, not an actual person. And in the event where you're not getting back to customers in a sufficient amount of time, or you're not getting them the right answer, or you're not addressing them by name, it's very likely that a combination of these things, or even one of these things, is going to convince that customer to go to a different brand. I mean, there's so much competition out there nowadays that consumers are willing to pay a couple extra bucks just for that more personal interaction with the brand. And so make sure you're personalizing that interaction with your customers and making them feel like you want to have a relationship with them long term. Number two is automate frequently asked questions. Uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but one of the most common requests we see, uh, especially in the D2C environment with brands, is, you know, where's my order? What's my shipping? status? When is it going to get here? Questions that you and I have both asked in the past as well. And we're finding that agents are spending way too much time manually responding to these kinds of requests. And it's not allowing them to focus on really getting in front of prospective new customers um, via a number of other different channels. And so what we can do with the integrations is we can bring in the variables like name, order information, tracking information. Um, and we could set rules in the background to automatically respond to customers if they were to 
for example, ask about shipping or, or status of their order. And that's just one example. But there are a number of other ways that, that brands can use automation. The important thing there, obviously, is to not overuse automation. There, There's only so much that you can do with, with that piece of the equation. And if you do overuse it, then that takes away from point number one, which is personalization. And number three, find opportunities to drive revenue through, through customer support. Customer support, as I mentioned earlier, is no longer just a, a reactive piece of the organization. It's much more proactive nowadays. So institute live chat campaigns. Hop on a page in front of a customer, uh, basically inducing them to make a purchase by telling them something that they want to hear or helping them out in, in making a decision in terms of product in your website. Utilize social media. If somebody comes in and comments on one of your ads and says they love this product that you posted, respond to them directly in line from within Gorgeous and provide them with a discount code to induce them to come to your website. Institute SMS campaigns. SMS is, is being widely adopted across the industry now, especially over the last year or so. And if you have a new product launch, announce it via SMS. People are on their phones all the time. And chances are they're at least going to click through that link to get to your website and take a look at what you have to offer, especially if they've been customers of yours in the past. And, and if they haven't, then it's a chance to, to gain new customers. So be proactive, not reactive is point number three. And you know, if you combine those three things, I think you're going to have a successful BFCM. No, I love that. I love that. So in just to recap, number one, personalize all interaction with customers. We, we talk a lot about on the show about the trend of uh, personalizing products. Well, also personalize those interactions with customers as well when they do have maybe uh, some pain points. If it goes so far. In your second point, automate frequency or, or have an FAQ sheet um, absolutely makes total sense. And the third point I love, which is turning your customer experience or your customer service center from a cost center into a revenue driver. And I think that is pretty amazing um, idea and also really cool because then you get, then you can also influence a repeat rate. And at the same time, if you don't have a great customer service center, if that's not fully baked out and you maybe aren't personalized with customers, then they might churn and you might lose them to a competitor. So that's awesome, Rohan. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 